This is The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth. Good morning and welcome to The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center. I'm Kevin Northup. The Weekender for Saturday, September 17th, 2022. Coming up this hour, as the world reflects on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, many in our region are remembering a royal visit to Shelburne. The new reigning monarch, King Charles, visited Shelburne in 1983, along with his wife at the time, a young Princess Diana. Former CJLS owner and reporter Ray Zink produced a feature on the royal visit, and you'll hear that in two parts this morning. And Candace Fibbs is joined by Mary Eldridge and Daniel Holland to learn more about the Yarmouth Area Community Fund and a new funding stream. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. With the passing of Queen Elizabeth II recently, many folks are reviewing their memories of the royal family. A very special visit to Shelburne by Prince Charles and Princess Diana in 1983 was covered by this program, The Weekender, and by former owner and reporter Ray Zink. This morning, we present that entire report to you in two parts. Here's part one. This week's Royal Visit to Shelburne, a special report on The Weekender. Town crier Perry Wambach makes it official. The royal tour of Shelburne is underway. It's Thursday morning. Prince Charles and Princess Diana have just disembarked the Britannia and are making their way through a 45-minute walkthrough in the historic Loyalist downtown area of Shelburne, shrouded in light fog. For Perry Wambach, his royal cry is a career highlight. Yes, this is one of the highlights. Of course, the second highlight of this is going to be the first North American Town Crier Championship being held in September 13th. Good luck on that. Uh, you're going to take part, I assume? Oh, definitely, yes. I'll be there, right in the middle.
In his official welcoming remarks to the prince and princess who arrived in Nova Scotia Tuesday, Premier John Buchanan said, There are no subjects more devoted to the crown or more loyal to the sovereign than the people of Nova Scotia. For Shelburne County, celebrating its 200th year of loyalist heritage, the Premier's remarks rang true. Those lined up for perhaps no more than a mere glance of the royal couple were indeed royal blue. They came down at 12. We stayed in the car. The three girls came at 12. We now what? to make sure we had a front seat. <laughs> now what about provisions? Were you uh, well stocked with hot coffee and things? Uh, oh, we didn't bring anything. <laughs> you say that in jest, of course. You no. couldn't survive the whole night without coffee or... We did. We did. Just about an hour ago. Yeah, an hour ago. We went and had something to eat last night around 11. Then we had tea and coffee. Uh, were you just sitting around the house and saying, uh, well, uh, they're coming, let's go early? Or was this planned in, in days of preparation? <laughs> no. It wasn't planned at all. No, our, decision. Our, I take it some of you are any of you married here? Oh yeah. <laughs> what about your husbands? Did they come along? Oh no, they said we were crazy. Little disowners. Oh, he doesn't see our picture in the newspaper in the sleeping bags. <laughs> so now you've been here since nine o'clock last night. What do you expect to see when they come across? Can't wait. I'm so excited. Well, she expects to. Oh, get a handshake anyway. <laughs> and a kiss, maybe. Well, I don't know. If they find out you've been here since 9 o'clock, you might get a handshake at least. Would you do it again if you had to? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I would go to Lunenburg if I had a way. How long have you been here? 1 o'clock. 1 o'clock this morning? 1 o'clock this morning. You came from Yarmouth? All the way from Yarmouth. Now, what were things like here 1 o'clock this morning? It's very busy here now. But how many people were here with you? Well, when we arrived, there was about 15 people. And did you camp out, or did you stay at this location just to hold the spot? We never moved an inch, never moved an inch from here. What about the weather? Any uh, inclement weather faced? I know it's a bit foggy here this morning, but what about last night? No, it was very nice, very warm, peaceful. You feel this will be worth it? Very much so. What, what brings you here to see the royal couple uh, since 1 o'clock this morning? I've just always wanted to see her, to see the royal couple and see Lady Di, Prince Charles. And it's worth coming here? Well worth it, well worth it. What brings you here to see the royal couple? What do you expect to get out of this? Just to see Lady Di. What about Prince Charles? Well, I can take him too. But you're strictly Lady Di, Lady though. Di. Lady Di fan. Hi, how are you this morning? Good. What's your name? Virginia Marie Holden. Virginia Marie Holden, how old are you? Six and a half. Six and a half. And you have something special this morning to give to Princess Diana. What are you going to be giving to her? Flowers. Did you pick them yourself? No. I don't suppose you've ever given flowers to a princess before, have you? No. Are you looking forward to it? Yes. Do you think you might ever get to do it again? No. Nope. How long have you been here this morning? I don't know. About 15 minutes. <laughs> we haven't been here very long, really. Maybe about half an hour. And uh, you obviously are her mother. Yes, I am. What's your name? Nan Holden. And you're wearing uh, period garments, too. Did you make the garments yourself? Yes, sir. I've been working on them since November. 
What what uh, can you tell me about the clothing? What uh, uh, type of uh, loyalist would wear something similar to what you and your daughter are wearing today? Um, we're wearing the working class style of clothing. Um, it's, it's it's quite simple actually in style, but there's quite a few pieces. There's uh, under under uh, like a slip, which is called a chemise, and then there's a petticoat, which usually is seen as as the uh, the skirt, and then there's a, a bodice and, and usually an apron and a hat and a purse underneath. There's quite a few things really in the costume itself. Are you excited right now? Um, actually, my excitement uh, or my concerns are mostly getting here and getting it standing in the right place, and I think I'm quite uh, quite relaxed now, <laughs> knowing that we're ready. Okay, thanks very much for talking with us. Thank you. Thanks a lot for talking with us, okay? Thank you. Bye. I'm now speaking with a couple of very uh, well-dressed people from a couple of uh, hundred years ago. And uh, first of all, I'd like to get your names, if I could. John and Corrine Earl. Now, you're not long-time residents of Shelburne, I understand, but you are taking part in, in the festivities today. Uh, how do you feel about this? Rather excited. Are you looking forward to the prince and princess uh, to get a, a glimpse, or what would you hope to take away from this visit? Maybe a picture if I'm lucky. <laughs> Now, can you tell us a little bit about what you're wearing? Uh, sir, you are dressed mostly in black. I would imagine something to do with the clergy. Uh, possibly, yes, but what I'm wearing is the basic loyalist costume that would have been worn during the period. Okay, could you describe basically what you have on, what the material is made of, and a little bit of uh, how you look? The suit is 100% cotton. It's a heavy twill cotton. The vest is... Um, brocade with a silver lorex thread in it. The shirt is white with handmade lace at the jabot for the jabot and for the cuffs which extend below the cuffs of the jacket. The shoes have buckles put on ordinary shoes to look like they used to be. And he's wearing a top hat, a beaver hat. How typical would this have been? Is, is this uh, a typical um, aristocracy kind of dress of 200 years ago? Yeah, this would be the upper class dress for the, for the men. And could you describe what you're wearing? It's uh, very unusual, very pretty. Uh, the, it has a quilted petticoat and uh, the dress is called a mantua. The skirt is open at the front. There's ruching on the low square neck and down the front. The lace extends below the sleeve and around the neck. This is from the chemise, which is worn underneath it. And I'll show you my pocket. pocket. Okay. The pockets were made and worn under the petticoat, and they were beautifully embroidered and such things because they weren't in the dresses like nowadays. The hat I'm wearing is the um, little uh, doily almost with lace around it, which was worn... Well, they, they always wore something on their heads. Uh, if they were outside, they may have worn the bonnet, like my daughter's wearing over there, uh, <laughs> or a very large hat with ribbons or plumes or anything like that. They always had their head covers, even if, even if just a plume rather than this little thing that looks like a hanky. I'd like to ask about uh, two things of, of the clothing. Number one, where did you get the design and who made your clothes? And where did you get the materials? Uh, the designs were researched by people living here. Elizabeth Demolitor was one of the ones who did a lot of work on the design, and she had classes to teach you to make them. I made mine and my husband's. I bought 
the material for my dress in Halifax, it's 100% cotton, which would have been one of the authentic materials at the time. Um, let me see, you know, what else? <gasps> I don't know. The other comment I could make about the costume is that you don't get in and out of it in a hurry. <laughs> it takes quite some time. And uh, does it feel comfortable? Would have clothes been comfortable in those years, 200 years ago, the Loyalists? This is the second time I've worn the suit. I feel a little more comfortable this time around. But the first time, it seemed quite awkward. Very, very busy in Shelburne. Uh, you're going to take away some memories, I would imagine, from, uh, from this visit of the Prince and Princess. We hope to, yes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and thank you very much. Part and parcel of any royal tour includes not only royalty and fans, but also the working press, a media contingent that numbered in the hundreds on this occasion. There were Canadian reporters, national, provincial, and local. But the media coverage also included the British hacks, the affectionate term applied to British reporters whose only job it is to watch and report on the royal family. The Weekender talked to several of them to find out what it's like to follow royalty around the world. James Whitaker is a columnist and senior reporter with London's Daily Mirror. Looking very British with umbrella in hand, Mr. Whitaker first compared this tour with the recent successful Australian visit by the royal couple. Well, one difference isn't, is that the weather is exactly the same. It's pretty awful in both countries. In fact, I was in New Zealand too. I think the major difference is that in Canada, people are much more upfront. They yell a lot more, they scream a lot more, and they're more outward going. But the enthusiasm really is the same in, in all three countries. Are you enjoying yourself so far in this country? Very much, um, except for the weather, which is, it has been ghastly. I mean, today it's overcast, but other days it, it's been raining and we got very soaked. And, of course, it cuts the crowds down and spoils it enormously for the Prince and Princess. The media reports that we've been hearing to date uh, claim that this tour is uh, one of the most publicized tours ever, and uh, close to 500 reporters from around the world are gathering in Canada and uh, that's uh, supposedly almost 100 more than were in Australia and New Zealand. Is, uh, is, is that kind of reporting correct? Is this tour uh, getting more publicity than, uh, than tours uh, in the past? No, I wouldn't think it is, actually. The, tour, the publicity that came out of Australia and New Zealand, I would say, was rather more than this. There were many more photographers, uh, and particularly freelance photographers, on the Antipodean tour because that was a the first time that the prince and princess had been on a on a tour of the commonwealth and the first one is always that more interesting the break also between the two has only been about six weeks so although there is a lot of interest in this in some ways it's just an extension of the other tour and internationally there is nowhere near as much interest in this tour as there was down under mr whitaker how is royalty accepted, received in Britain today? Oh, enormously popular. I would say they've never ever been more popular. The Queen is absolutely adored, of course, and Diana is, um, well, she's just an amazing person. She attracts so much attention and publicity. People do turn out, go very many miles to see her, catch a glimpse of her. I would say that the royal family is absolutely more rock-solid today than it has ever been. It's such a stable uh, factor. 
uh, nowadays uh, with un so much unemployment and inflation and people can't trust anything too much you look towards the queen and uh, the family and you know it is so solid and people i think like that and respect that enormously and respond to it is it true that diana is the world's number one celebrity today Oh, I think so, yes. I can't think of anybody. I'm sure any Hollywood publicist would love to get the sort of exposure for their client as Diana has. Yes, she's on the cover of every magazine. Anytime she even blows her nose or uh, picks up her fork and puts a bit of food in her mouth, it just makes news. Yeah, she's number one. The Weekender will return in a moment. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. And now part two of our special coverage from 1983 featuring Ray Zink covering Prince Charles and Princess Diana's royal visit to Shelburne. By the look of the cameras, your newspaper. Yes, I'm actually from a press agency in London, London News Service. Uh, how long have you been on this tour since, uh, since it began a couple of days ago and you'll continue right through to Edmonton? Yes, I will do. And before that, I was uh, on the tour of Australia and New Zealand. Right, tell us uh, what it's like to be a reporter on, on a tour, like the six-week uh, venture in Australia, and then coming to here. Um, tiring, I would imagine. That's one of the things. Uh, it's very arduous. For example, uh, we finished sending out our reports at, uh, at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock this morning, and got two hours sleep before getting on a coach at uh, 5.30 to come here. And that's how it goes on all through the day. How many reporters are traveling on this tour, international reporters? Well, I know there's about 40 from Britain, that's reporters and photographers. Um, and there's some from Sweden, Finland, uh, South Africa, and that's about as many as I know. I think there's two or three hundred uh, accredited altogether. Is that a normal contingency of media on a tour like this? Uh, it certainly is where the Prince and Princess of Wales is concerned. There's always 40 to 60 British press traveling with her. Can you tell me whether there were any uh, unusual incidents in the crowd, let's say people fainting, uh, crowd reaction, any stories you can tell me from the point of view of the crowd and, and their reception of the Prince and Princess uh, so far in Nova Scotia? Uh, I think the... Uh, the most, uh, the biggest reaction I've seen so far is a poor old lady who, who collapsed in uh, Annapolis Royale uh, when she learned that the prince was not going to arrive. You suspect that a lot of people are very anxious to see the couple as they make their tour through Nova Scotia. There's been good reception all the way? Yes, I wouldn't say it was hysterical, but it's certainly been enthusiastic. What about your coverage and, and the media's coverage in general of, of an event like this? What are some of the difficulties besides the, the, the tiring routine? Do you find it tedious at all? At the end of the tour, when one has been taking exactly the same pictures, uh, then you do find it rather tedious, that's true. When you're on a tour like this, what do you look for at, at every new event? Do you look for a different angle? Do you look for a different story? How do you keep reporting the same couple, only the scene has changed? Uh, you put in your microscopic eye and the most trivial event becomes important. Such as, uh, where, where are some of your angles uh, for, for your stories, for instance? Well, for example, if uh, Princess Diana was suddenly to appear rather tired, you'd start to worry about her health. There's been some speculation, I think, in the British press of, uh, of her being pregnant again. Uh, is there any, are you people following that angle? 
Well, yes, I think most of us believe that she will not become pregnant until she's finished this Canadian tour. But then it would seem sensible that it'd be about the right amount of time between Prince William and the next child. Is there a lot of interest uh, in Britain, I would imagine, with this royal tour here in Canada in particular? Any different interest, let's say, than the tour in Australia back home? Well, I really don't know about that because I'm not there, so I don't. I haven't seen the photo. I haven't seen the newspapers in Britain to be able to make a judgment. The highlight of the royal visit for some was having a few words with either the prince or princess, perhaps a handshake, but for most it was the address given by Prince Charles at the unveiling of a plaque commemorating their visit to the Shelburne area. Prince Charles was introduced by Premier John Buchanan. Your Royal Highnesses, this part of Nova Scotia was the first loyalist settlement in North America and the early settlers to the Shelburne area brought with them not only their crafts, their art, their competence, but they also brought with them a fierce loyalty to Britain and to the Crown. That fierce loyalty is still here in Shelburne and in western Nova Scotia, and you, sir, and the Princes of Wales are most welcome in Shelburne, and I would ask you now to say a few words and unveil a plaque opening this dory shop and a commemorative of your royal visit. Mr. Premier, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of my wife and myself, I would like to thank you all very, very much indeed for such a kind and friendly welcome to Shelburne. And the great thing is that, slowly but surely, we are beginning to see what Shelburne looks like. <laughs> we had the greatest difficulty seeing what uh, Halifax looked like yesterday, but here in Shelburne, the mist is beginning to rise and the midges are beginning to come down, so all looks well set. I believe that this is the first time that there has ever been a, a visit by members of the royal family to Shelburne, and my wife and I are so pleased that we should be the first to come here and help you celebrate your 200th anniversary of loyalty to the British Crown. I know you all have a very proud and long history uh, in this part of the world. I know that in 1783, 5,000 loyalists arrived here, and two months later, another 5,000 loyalists arrived here. And I can only imagine that the logistic problems of dealing with that number of immigrants must have been horrifying. And I suspect that there was a great deal of hardship suffered by many loyalists at the time. But now I see that Shelburne has become a, a thriving and a successful place. And I do hope that in the next hundred years it will be equally successful and that maybe we shall be able to send our son William back here to celebrate your uh, tercentenary. So ladies and gentlemen, 
my wife and I offer you our heartiest congratulations and uh, gratitude, as it were, uh, 200 years too late from my ancestor, King George III. And on that note, uh, we have great pleasure in unveiling this plaque. A lot of people seem to be taken up a lot with the, the princes, more than the prince. Would you agree with that? Yes. Were they exactly like you thought they would be from pictures you saw from television? Uh, did they look different in person uh, at all? No, they didn't. They seemed the same as in pictures and on TV. So a pretty good day for you. Yeah. Well, why are you so excited? I kissed Prince Charles. Right on the cheek. Say that again. Right there. I kissed Prince Charles. Right there. <laughs> What did he say to you? Um, he said, well, I asked him, he said, are you ready for it? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, I won't do you any good. And I said, well, make me happy. Oh, so that's just about all. And, and he kissed you on the cheek? I kissed him. You kissed him. I muckled him. Did his wife mind? I don't know. She was way up the other end. I don't think she would. What did he say after that? He, oh, I think he just said it won't do you any good. And again, I said, I'm happy. You're excited. Very, very, very. <laughs> I'm talking now with Mr. J.B. Clark from Richmond, Virginia. And uh, Mr. Clark and his wife were on vacation, are on vacation, I should say. They still have another week, they tell me. And they uh, just happened to be in Shelburne today when the Prince and Princess of Wales uh, happened to be in Shelburne the same day, at the same time. And uh, Mr. Clark, it's amazing, isn't it, that uh, you knew nothing about it, yet you, uh, you got some good pictures and uh, you uh, saw some history in the making. Uh, for sure, it was uh, quite a stroke of luck that uh, we should... This time last week, having planned to go someplace else, inadvertently changed our plans to come to Nova Scotia. And we just happened upon the piece of history occurring here and think quite a great deal of it, especially the reaction of the people uh, here in Canada. Noted that uh, this sort of thing could not happen in the United States, especially in New York, Washington, L.A., and places like that. And it's quite a compliment to the people of Canada to recognize history for what it's worth. So you find it amazing that the prince and princess can walk among the people like this without incident? Uh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Uh, I haven't been this close to the mayor of Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and I knew him as a personal friend. Someone is selling shirts here and it says Prince Charles, Princess Diana, Royal Visit Canada. And uh, how, are the, how are the shirt sales going? Great. In the last two days, we've sold over 300 shirts. What about this morning with, uh, with the highlight of the visit, of course, with uh, them actually here? Did, uh, were sales pretty brisk? Yes, they were very good. In fact, they sold here probably faster than in Halifax for the number of people that were here. Now, do you represent an organization or who actually is selling these shirts? Well, we're students and we're doing this on our own. You follow the tour around? Yeah, in fact, we're going all the way to Ottawa with them. How has reaction been so far to not only the sales, but to the royal couple? Uh, has this been a typical kind of uh, visit? I think uh, most of the people are thrilled with the idea of seeing Diana. And uh, uh, with the shirts, people just, uh, they're eating them right up. You're also selling shirts. Uh, what's your impression of, of the crowd reaction to the royal couple? I seem to hear a lot about uh, more enthusiasm for Princess Diana than, than the Prince. Would you agree with that? Oh, most definitely. Um, as I've seen before with other visits, uh, when the Queen came over, like it was all centralized on the Queen, and this time Charles being overshadowed by Diane. Very, very much so, I do believe. Uh, 
as we've seen with the crowds uh, in the last two days that we've gone to. And uh, my, my personal opinion is uh, I'd rather see her than Charles myself. <laughs> I think I'd agree with that. Yes. Uh, can you tell me whether this was a large crowd, do you think, here today, compared to crowds? Of course you can't compare it to Halifax. Uh, compared to Halifax, proportionality-wise, uh, I think it was pretty good. But, um, the first day that they arrived in the garrison grounds, there was about close to 30,000, 35,000 people there. But, you know, that's, that's Halifax populace. Any idea of what the crowd was like here? Here, uh, about three to 4,000. What kind of a crowd was it? Restrained or enthusiastic? How would you compare with other crowds? Well, it's pretty well same right across the board. Um, pretty enthusiastic all the way. This is Racing back in the Yarmouth CJLS studios following the Royal Tour. And Brian Medell, one of the other CJLS staffers, uh, reporting live from the scene. And uh, some of your impressions, uh, Brian, any surprises with the Royal Couple? Well, Ray, when I first saw the Royal Couple after they left their limousine and began shaking hands and mingling with some of the people who had, uh, who had gathered and uh, some of them who had, had been there for hours upon hours, a lot of people uh, snapping pictures, and especially reporters, uh, practically jumping on each other to uh, to get photographs. I think to survive in a situation like that, the royal couple certainly has learned to be oblivious to a lot of the activity around them, and it gave the impression at times that they were sort of looking through the crowd, looking over their heads, not really seeing anything in front of them. I'm sure that's simply an impression on our part. It's just a protective mechanism, I suppose, they have. And it's been a pleasure this week to report live uh, from the scene in Shelburne and presenting this report, the Royal Tour of Shelburne, a special report on The Weekender. Weekender will return in a moment. Welcome back to The Weekender. I'm Candace Bibbs. Since 2008, the Yarmouth Area Community Fund has awarded 108 grants to local groups in the Tri-Counties. Today, I'm joined by co-chair of the Yarmouth Area Community Fund, Mary Eldridge, and CEO with the Community Foundation of Nova Scotia, Daniel Holland. Thank you both for joining me. Can you start by introducing yourselves and your roles with the respective foundations? Sure. Um, thanks so much for having us uh, to chat with you today. Um, I'm the 
leader of the Community Foundation of Nova Scotia. We're a provincial organization that's been around for about 13 years. Uh, and uh, we work with a whole variety of uh, different kinds of funds and fund holders. Um, essentially, our purpose is to inspire giving and steward funds uh, that will help build communities of respect, belonging, and possibility. And we work with about 120 different funds right across the province, uh, of which there are about 10 community funds. And probably one of the most active is the Armathary Community Fund. Excellent. And yourself, Mary? And uh, Peter and I... Um, started the Yarmouth Area Community Fund in 2008 and um, one of the reasons why we thought that this would be a good thing to have in Yarmouth was the fact that having been involved with several charities over the years and trying to get grants from the town and municipalities and finding that the grants were getting less and less we felt that the Yarmouth Area Community Fund would be one fund that could supplement these grants that were going to charities and and uh, our main purpose is to help all those especially in need in the Yarmouth area and we want to we're hoping we know this fund will be around for many years and try to help Yarmouth remain sustainable well into the future. Daniel as CEO of the Community Fund Foundation of Nova Scotia can you tell me a bit about how that foundation works or feeds into the Yarmouth area community fund in that partnership? Sure uh, happy to do that. I'll say first of all that the Community Foundation of Nova Scotia is one of about 200 community foundations right across the country. Uh, the movement's about 100 years old. Uh, I mentioned that uh, ours is uh, just over 13 years old here in Nova Scotia and uh, Mary, Peter and other volunteers decided to bring the Yarmouth Area Community Fund uh, in right at the beginning. Uh, we're one of many uh, and they are one of many uh, community funds that we help. Our job really at the Community Foundation is to be a charitable giving facilitator. So we're here to listen uh, to and ta uh, take directions uh, from different donors or groups of donors to care for endowed funds uh, and then to grant based on donors' directions uh, and instructions. We have three main streams, if you will, of funds. Uh, one is a community fund where local volunteers get together. They set local priorities and, and a shared vision for what they'd like to grant to, as Mary was just describing, in the Armouth area for local fundraising and to think about things in, in a way that is sustainable and for the long term. Um, and then they make the local decisions. Uh, there's also donor-advised funds, which you could think of quite similarly, but it's an individual or maybe a family who will set the direction uh, and the instructions for what the fund should be uh, set up for and what it should serve in the long term. And then there are larger impact funds that would serve a, a certain theme, and that can be geographic uh, as well as uh, very local or provincial. Uh, and for each and every one of those, our job is essentially to act like a back office. And we're here to listen to and, uh, and then take instructions, but it's the fund holder, in the case of a community fund like the Yarmouth Area Community Fund, um, Peter and Mary and their fellow volunteers are the fund holders. They are responsible. They set the direction, uh, and we take instructions for them, but we provide kind of that back office set of services, if you will. Um, and that's how we work with each of the different funds right across the province. Okay, and you said that was 13 years that the Community Foundation of Nova Scotia has been established, and 13 years as well for the Yarmouth Area Community Fund. So did they get kind of born together? Uh, yes, they did in a way. The Community Foundation, the Executive Director of the Community Foundation of Nova Scotia, when she started, started with a small amount, with, and, and the whole focus is to 
accumulate many funds so that they can help. And so she knew that I had this desire to have this fund, so they, she approached me as one of the first ones she approached. Okay. And uh, so that's how we got started. Uh, the, the, the advantage of the Community Foundation of Nova Scotia is the fact that if anybody would like to set up a foundation like the Yarmouth Area Community Fund or even a private foundation, it can be done through the Community Foundation of Nova Scotia and, and all the administrative duties are done by the Community Foundation of Nova Scotia. They do the tax return, they do the tax receipts, it's all under that one umbrella, and all the money donated to these funds, the capital is preserved forever, and it's pooled together and invested properly and monitored well, and, uh, but it's separate, and all money that has donated through the, in, in honor of Yarmouth stays in Yarmouth. It's all dedicated to Yarmouth and will be forever. So that certainly alleviates a little bit of that pressure of volunteers handling the financial piece since it's handled under the kind of bigger umbrella. Yeah, that's right. The Yarmouth Area Community Fund is offering funds to different organizations with an application process yearly. Yes. Can you take me through that process a little bit? Okay. Each spring we call for applications and I try to, we put it on our Facebook page that it's usually in March and also I send emails out to the various charities and uh, um, the mandate is that it's to help people in need in the area and it's anywhere in Yarmouth County. So the applications come in, we have a committee that reviews the applications and, uh, um, and then we usually, uh, some of them will have a, a budget and we look at the budgets and we do the best we can. We're at a point now where we have about $20,000 to give out each year. So we're a little over 500000 in our fund, so we have a little over $20,000 now, and that will grow because the fund keeps growing. Yeah, that's a significant amount available every year to, to Yarmouth area uh, organizations. Yes. And it is Yarmouth County. It's not the tri-counties no, at it's Yarmouth large. County. it's Yarmouth County. Yes. So in addition to this, there's a scholarship program component as well is that a separate group of funds or that comes out of that, that collective that comes out of that fund when we when we re, when we reached enough a uh, point where we felt that we could perhaps give scholarships because again there's a lot of students who uh, can barely afford to do go into their secondary education so that's the criteria again is the need and uh, we started with a one thousand dollar scholarship now we're getting two of them so it's it's growing there too and that opens as well in March, that same application timeline? A little earlier, um, because they, they have to, I think scholarships are, um, usually the applications are more like February, aren't they? They are. I think so, yes. Okay. So looking over the past newsletter that, that you shared with me, Mary, it looks like a wide variety of organizations really benefit from this fund. I saw fire departments, communities, halls, health-related organizations. Have you found over the years the needs in the community shift to any sort of category in general, or does it remain quite varied? It's varied. Um, one of our supporters uh, is the Scotia Wind Windmill, and they put a windmill in Brenton. And what they do is they give 1% of their gross property to somebody in the area. And because there wasn't really too much of a, uh, an organization in Brenton, they funnel their money through the community, Yarmouth Area Community Fund as well. So we always try to support um, communities in that area, like the South Ohio community, the, the Lakes and District 
fire hall and things like that. But I noticed last year um, quite a few of the applications were coming in for communities that were trying to help their residents with uh, heat in the winter, school lunches, and, and gifts for Christmas. So that was kind of a theme last year. This year it's been the community gardens. Okay. And we've had three, three applications to help people grow their own food. So it kind of changes with the, you know. Yeah, with different trends and, yes. um, you know, what's going on economically as well. The cost of living, the cost of food has gone up so much. So, yeah. you know, I can see definitely that that correlation with the community gardens and food yes. insecurity and that sort of thing would would be growing. New this year is the Reciprocity Health Fund. Tell me a little bit about this program how and how it came to fall under both of your umbrellas. Sure. Well, as Mary sits on our board, it falls under her umbrella in the sense that we um, manage 120 different funds. And when we are given responsibility for uh, caring for a fund and running a program uh, for grant applications, the final decision gets made by the board as a whole. Um, the Reciprocity Health Fund uh, is one of, as I mentioned, about 120 funds. I mentioned that we have a few different kinds, the community fund like the Aramathery Community Fund. Individual donor advised funds make up the largest group uh, of those. 